Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by wealthmanagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of wealthmanagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors. Guests join me to talk about their own experiences dealing with a struggle and how they overcame that. My guest today is Brandon Garrett. He's the president and chief investment officer of Snow Garrett Wealth Management, a hybrid advisory firm out of Weatherford, Texas. His wife just gave birth to twin baby girls just this week. So Brandon, congratulations on the new additions and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me and thank you for the kind words. Uh, last Thursday, we we welcomed our two little twin girls. And so it has been an eventful week to say the least, but very happy to be joining you today. Yeah, that's, that's such a great blessing. So right now we're currently faced with a global pandemic to change the mood a little bit. Um, It's, (laughs) it's claimed a lot of lives. You know, I don't even want to go into the numbers because they change so rapidly in terms of the casualties that this has taken. Many folks are facing death right now And Brandon himself had a near-death experience a couple years ago when he got a bacterial infection that led to septic shock while on vacation in the Cayman Islands. And I I just think that many of us, you know, have death and mortality on the mind. It's scary. And I think we can learn a lot from your experience, you know, a couple years ago. So we're glad that you're alive and you're here to tell us the story. Yeah. Um, and you got through it. So, I mean, just start at the beginning. How did, how did the events unfold? You know, how did you first notice that something was off? You, so you went to um, Grand Cayman with some friends. Right. So what, what happened? Yeah, so we were, uh, was the summer of 2017. Uh, my wife and I, along with three of my best friends from high school and their wives, we all went on a trip uh, to Grand Cayman. And we had a uh, beautiful condo right there on the beach, uh, you know, a pool, every, everything you could dream of when you think of what would a dream vacation look like. And um, things started off really well. And we had um, several, you know, several days of just fun and relaxation. And then uh, things started changing and then they started changing quickly. I guess it was about the third or fourth day into that trip that uh, we were we were out uh, playing golf and my buddies joke now that it was ironically probably the best nine holes of golf that I ever played yeah. uh, while I was complaining about the pain I was in and that I didn't feel well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we stopped it at nine holes, stopped it short. And um, I was really feeling poor. My back hurt. Um, I had a, I had a weird blister on my hand and we just thought, well, you know, we chalked it up to a new glove. Uh, no big deal. And, but I definitely could tell something was a little off. So I just thought I need to, you know, I need to hydrate, need to uh, rest a little bit and I'll be, be ready to go uh, the next day. And 
That next day was when things really changed quickly and we had chartered a boat to go fishing. And, and anybody that knows me knows uh, everybody else was there to golf and see the beach. I was there to fish. So I was really excited about that. And um, probably, you know, as soon as we get out to where we're starting to put the lines out, um, I was within probably 10 minutes of fishing. I was on the, on the floor uh, in the captain's cabin, uh, could barely move and was in so much pain that I, you know, I, I couldn't even really articulate what I was feeling. Most of what I felt was in my lower back. And so my back was, I just, any, any bit of movement was just sending excruciating pain through my body. So needless to say, we said, let's cut this short. We went back to land and um, I'm not a small guy. I know that we're uh, not able to see each other right now, but I'm definitely not uh, someone that you can just pick up and put over your shoulder and carry off a boat. So uh, it took uh, all three of my buddies to get me off the boat. And I think that's when they knew that something was probably wrong because I was just absolute, you know, dead weight at that point. I wasn't able to really move much at all. Mm. That's when we got me back to the condo. and. Uh, there in the condo, I, I laid down and, and I just told them, Hey, go get me some food, bring me some Gatorade. And, and uh, actually one of my good buddies is a chiropractor. I said, let's call Carl and have him walk y'all through how to adjust me. Cause this whole time it's my back that's hurting. And I'm convinced I just need, you know, I just need my back to be adjusted. So by the time they come back, I'm, I'm vomiting, I'm hallucinating. Um, they say, you know, my wife is there with me. She's crying. She's upset. And they say, we've got to do something. So that's when they called 911. Um, and they came and got me and got me on, in the ambulance. And it's one of those, I hate to use the word surreal because I feel like it's so overused now. But that was a moment I remember just laying in an ambulance and, you know, this overwhelming feeling of uncertainty because I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I knew something was definitely very wrong. Right. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm in a, you know, in a foreign country in an ambulance right now, <laughs> you know, this mm. can't be happening. This is something that should happen to someone else, not to me. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to just be here on vacation. This, you know, this, you know, uh, wake me up kind of thing. It just right. didn't feel real. And at that point uh, we were trying to make contact, you know, back home. My, my wife was with, with my family. And so just to give a little background. So my father and I are partners, we practice together and we, have always, you know, kind of said, Hey, we need to try to not travel at the same time as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, this time we said, it'll be okay. It's only two days that we're both going to be out traveling. Shouldn't be an issue. So as luck would have it, they were actually traveling internationally at that time too. So mm-hmm. um, trying to get in contact with my folks and let them know what's going on, but got to the, uh, got to the hospital and um, you know, Anybody that's been to the Caymans, Grand Caymans, a beautiful island. It is condo after condo of uh, you know billionaires from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as the infrastructure and the government's concerned, you know it is very much still. I don't know if I'd call it third world, but it's it's definitely not like the the healthcare that we're used to here in the U.S. So when we first got there, they ran some tests. They told me that I had rhabdomyolysis. Mm-hmm. You know, not a lot of folks are familiar with that, but. If you think like CrossFitters, marathon runners, you see those clips at the end of the marathon where you've got the runner and they're, they're barely able to lift their arms or shaking. That's rhabdomyolysis. And what it does is basically breaks your, uh, your muscles down into your bloodstream, which is mm. obviously very bad for you. They saw that immediately and said, we need to start filling me uh, full of fluids. And they want to get to the bottom of how I had this. Well, rhabdomyolysis, you know, extreme exertion 
um, from exercise was not what we were doing mm, <laughs> there right. on the island. I think I went to the gym one day with my buddies because they're all, I mean, they're all into CrossFit and uh, they all, uh, a couple of them, you know, they, they work out every day. I don't, but mm. I said, yeah, I'll go to the gym and, and lift some weights. So I don't feel, feel like a total, you know, do nothing here on this trip. So <laughs> keep up a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think that curling 25 pounds, um, <laughs> you know, just to, uh, just to put a, uh, that didn't give you put a show on. Yeah. 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 Didn't, didn't give me rhabdo. So, right. And, you know, luckily a couple of folks that, that we're with because of their exercise background and, and fitness, they knew exactly what rhabdomyolysis was and they've known people that have had it. Basically the two main causes are either exercise or drug use. Come to find out later, there was actually doctors and nurses pulling my friends aside, asking how much cocaine I'd done because they had just assumed that, well, if he hasn't been working out, they've definitely, you know, they've been up to something that they shouldn't be doing. And that's how this has happened. Right. Um, but obviously that wasn't happening either. That wasn't happening either. No. Now I had a few Mai Tais and margaritas, but there was <laughs> no illicit drug use. Right. We were all kind of confused on how it could be happening, but we just said, you know, this is, this is something that's definitely treatable. Um, they'll get, they'll get me fixed here in the next couple of days. I'll be able to fly out with everybody else. Mm. But then things got worse. This is whenever I probably, I was not fully, you know, I wasn't lucid this whole time. I don't remember exactly everything that happened, but I do remember doctors coming in and out. You know, they told my wife, you know, my heart was enlarged that they, at one point they wanted her to tell them it was okay to do open heart surgery on me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Absolutely not. We're not doing that. Um, That's scary. It's very scary. And, um, my kidneys were not functioning. My liver was enlarged. My heart was enlarged. All these things that they're telling us. And it was really scary. And at that point, you know, we started to think, well, I may not make it out of here, uh, especially with if it's bad enough to where we need to do heart surgery. At the time, I guess I was 29, 30 years old. There's no, you know, nothing good is going to come of this. This is, this, this could be the end. And, you know, that's when I started having those thoughts and they, they told us, you know, they don't do something that I probably based on what was happening, wasn't going to survive and um, that they need that quickly. Luckily at that time, there's a doctor that came in and I think just really tried to look at it from the, from a bigger uh, perspective. I think most of what was happening was they were chasing symptoms rather than trying to really diagnose a root cause. Right. And so that obviously rhabdo was part of the issue, but that was all they were trying to treat. They weren't trying to look at how that could have actually happened. So come to find out gram negative bacterial infections, which is what I have, uh, what I had, um, those often, or at least, you know, statistically material enough that it shows up when you do a search on it. It's like 7% of rhabdo cases come from bacterial infections. Okay. So that's whenever they started, Hey, we need to test. We need to test him. Um, at that point, I think I've been there for two and a half days, um, just being pumped full of fluids with no antibiotic while I had a bacterial infection, mm. which um, is not good. So that's why my um, heart was enlarged. My, uh, you know, my uh, internal organs were starting to you know, shut down. And it's because I was actually in septic shock. Um, it had gone long enough that, um, you know, I, I was actually experiencing sepsis, which is a terrible, terrible thing. And yeah. it's something that, uh, you know, has a very high mortality rate when you read about it. And it's, it, it's not a, just an easy recovery. It's a long recovery. Yeah. Uh, 
just as a little background, sepsis occurs when chemicals that fight infection by triggering inflammatory reactions are released into the bloodstream. And sh uh, septic shock occurs when there's a significant drop in blood pressure that can lead to respiratory or heart failure, stroke, failure of other organs, and death. Yep. Um, Man, you said so, it well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's exactly what Very I was serious. experiencing. Yeah, I was, I couldn't breathe. That was probably, I couldn't breathe and my back hurt terribly. So mm -hmm. they finally, they basically told me I need to, uh, at that point, they didn't know what I had, but they started to suspect an infection. And so my wife started calling, you know, they don't have a, um, you know, a jet line going from the hospital to U.S. hospital. You have to take care of this stuff yourself. So my wife is calling uh, different medevac companies trying to trying to get someone there to fly us out because they told us this particular doctor said you need you don't need to stay here you need to go back to the U.S. because this is pretty serious. So we were able to finally, you know, get get someone uh, to agree to come pick us up on a medevac flight. At that point, um, and as kind of as a side note, you know, you hear of people that get sick in foreign countries and these horror stories. And I don't say this to scare people because I definitely think. There's some wonderful things uh, out there for us to see as, as far as travel and visiting foreign countries go. But um, when it comes to the healthcare system, guess what? You're out of network, no matter where, yeah. no matter where you're at in that country. <laughs> what ended up happening was we had to actually pay cash to get out of that hospital. Like basically kind of, I mean, I hate to use the word hold hostage, but we weren't able to leave until we paid the hospital with a credit or debit card or uh, our transfer. And then wow. we had to make a down payment on the medevac flight. So I think it cost us somewhere to the tune of about 25 to 30,000 before we wow. could even get off that Island. Yeah. Oh so my gosh. if there's any uh, financial planning tidbits in here, emergency fund, very important. <laughs> and uh, also, um, and they didn't even diagnose you right. <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah, didn't diagnose me right at all. And uh, you know, trip insurance isn't just about cancellation. You need to make sure you have medical and healthcare insurance. It'll cover you. Anyways, that's my quick financial planning uh, <laughs> topic with this. But when we finally uh, got a hold of those folks, that's whenever I think I was turning. Like, I don't really have a lot of memory from all that period. That probably about 24 hours because um, I was just my my body was in shock. You know, septic mm. shock. So I can say that uh, that was probably um, you know the biggest relief for us was whenever we were able to get back to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, still had a long road ahead of me at that point. But it still brought some relief to get on that medevac flight. Absolutely. I mean, whenever I saw this, so the medevac flight, the folks that came, so doctor, I guess there's a doctor and a nurse, a paramedic. Mm -hmm. and when they came through that door and the people that are from Texas will know what I'm talking about. So uh, the Halliburton suit, it's like a coveralls, you know, just a one piece suit. Uh -huh. uh, jumpsuit. So this guy, he's big guy, fills up the doorway wearing a blue coverall suit and had a huge U.S. flag patch on the front. And mm -hmm. he yelled some expletives and said, basically, this is my patient now. Back off. Mm. Started unplugging stuff and plugging me into other stuff. And I, it was at that moment I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to be okay. This, this guy's got me. You know, I'm in good care now. So that was definitely a big sigh of relief for me. Mm. Oddly enough, that's that's not when my friends said that they knew I'd be okay, though. Mm. So mm. They, they told me later, I'm always the guy that 
people tell me all the time, you know, are you ever serious? And I say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. It's like to have fun when I'm doing it. Right. So mm. always joking, always having a good time. And, um, you know, I, I think for them to see me so sick and, and not joking, you know, I think it kind of freaked them out. Like, wow, this could be really bad for him to not be making fun of himself during this time. It must be pretty serious. And so they said that whenever I got wheeled out, I don't remember this, but I'm assuming they're telling me the truth. I got wheeled out of one of the rooms, going to another room for tests. And as they rolled me by, I guess I saw them out of my peripheral or I heard them or something. And I, uh, I flipped them the bird as they, <laughs> as they <laughs> just real, real slowly. So they, they all kind of chuckled and said, that's when we knew that you're going to pull through. So mm. you're still fighting. Yeah. But, I mean, what, what were some of the thoughts going through your head during those few days in, in the hospital in the Cayman yeah. Islands? I mean, you thought you were going to die at, at many points, right. right? And, and what were some of the conversations you had with your wife and your mom and, well, so that, and to go back to uh, the thing with my parents, basically my wife was having to call my, her, her parents, my in-laws for them to call my parents. Cause we were both international and couldn't get through to each other at the time. Mm. None of this may be in the moment, most of it, you know, weeks and months later in retrospect, as I thought about these things. But, um, you know, one thing that, that stuck out for me more than anything I don't know, the most emotional moment for me was telling my wife where all the estate planning documents were. Mm. Uh, that was, that was tough. Cause that was whenever I realized, you know, subconsciously, I wouldn't be saying this if I didn't know how heavy and how serious this was. Right. Um, of course she told me she didn't want to hear any of that, but mm. that was definitely, that's something that I remember uh, very well. Uh, and, and then I guess as far as the thoughts that were going through my head, um, you know, we live our lives. I mean, we're all afraid of death. Um, it's a scary thing. What was strange for me was whenever I s- kind of stared it there in the face and, you know, I'll, I'll make no, you know, no, no apologies. I, I'm, I'm a born again Christian. And, um, and I definitely know that I have a, a, a future and a hope. And, and so there's no doubt in my mind that, that God was there and, and watching after me. But most of my thoughts though, I think because of that just inner peace, uh, I wasn't really, I was never afraid of what would happen to me. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you think about death and you think uh, another overused term right now, FOMO, right? Fear of missing mm-hmm. out. What, you know, what am I not going to get to see? What am I not going to get to do? What have I not done yet? What would I like to accomplish that I wouldn't? All those things that I think we think we would be considering in, in a time like that, none of that came to my mind. And 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 I also realized that really nothing that I've filled a lot of my day with or a lot of my thoughts with that I really thought about during that time. So it was kind of a wake up call to say, Hey, you know, what's your, are you living purposely? And is, is there a, you know, a, a bigger picture objective than just getting through day by day. And I think that I definitely fallen in that trap of just living in the moment. And, um, but whenever I think about what I was really truly thinking about, I was thinking about people, relationships, uh, I thought about my wife and um, my kids, of course. They're, we have two older boys. They're nine and five. So I was thinking about my sons and what would happen to them if they grew up without a dad. You know, right. I, I prayed, you know, God, don't. I hope they don't turn to something else to fill that void. And just all those kind of thoughts. Um, hmm. Thought about friends and, and, and my sister, my parents, my family, 
I didn't really, so I didn't really think about what would happen to me. I thought more about what would life be like for them? Like how sad, you know, how sad I was that they would be so sad. Um, right. It was a selfless, yeah, selfless thoughts. They were selfless thoughts. And, but it, it's one of those things. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you've had to tell someone disappointing or bad news and you're almost just more, you're more upset about feeling for them in that moment and how they're going to take that news than you are the news itself. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, yeah, right. And, and that's definitely how I felt. And, um, it definitely, uh, made me realize, you know, again, later on that, and my pastor has told me this my entire life, that life is all about relationships. And that's all that mattered to me there. Whenever I thought it might be the end, I was just thinking about the people I loved and the people that loved me. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when uh, you know, my dad died of cancer a couple of years ago and, you know, he knew that the end was coming for him and he just told me, you're going to thrive and you're going to live a great life and you're going to be fine and, and everything's going to be okay. You're going to have a great family and great life. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't him worrying about me being without him or, you know, like there was no selfish thoughts. It was just like, you're going to be fine. And, you know, more, more comforting thoughts for me, you know, as he was leaving this world. So I see a little bit what you mean there. I know that, you know, before you sort of got back to uh, day to day, it took you about six months to get back to normal after the incident. How did you keep your business going during that time? I don't know to say fortunately or unfortunately in this event, but our family is no stranger to medical trauma. Like I said, I practiced with my dad and um, back in 2011, uh, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, Brandon Garrett, just about a year out of college. I was, uh, you know, getting my, all my exams done and, you know, it just seemed like, you know, what else, you know, every, I was just on cloud nine. Everything was going great. I just had my first son was born in February of 11. And then my dad, who at that time, our, our business was really, I mean, it was a Lone Ranger type business. It was, yeah, he had a couple of assistants and he had just brought me on, but he was the marketing guy. He was the uh, financial planner. He was the rainmaker. He was the relationship person. He was everything. And mm-hmm. he had what we found out later to be a series of heart attacks. Uh, we weren't sure. We just thought he was feeling really poorly. Um, and then I realized, wow, I've actually seen him have like four heart attacks after the doctor told me what, you know, what actually would happen. But um, he ended up having to have a quadruple bypass. And oh, wow. Yeah. And so again, I mean, yeah, there's some other folks there and I don't want to make a lie. I mean, there's people there that were helping, but as far as um, you know, we say down here in Texas, baptized by fire. Um, I mm. definitely experienced that uh, in that time. And it was probably the most stressful time of my life actually was 2011 uh, with my dad being out and uh, being sick. And then people always say, you know, we haven't had a bear market in years. Well, I remember the 19.7% correction in the summer of 2011 and I'm calling it a bear market. So mm. uh, it was rough. Yeah. And, but, but from that, we learned a lot of things. And, and one of those things was, uh, and really just working through uh, with our, our business coaches, you know, we, we all say that we're here to take care of clients that will be here for them no matter what. And that, um, that we're always going to take care of them. But how true is that really? You know, and that's uh, Ray Sclafani, the good friend of ours. You know, he calls that the, the big fat lie. Uh, and he talks about that um, often in uh, his writings. And 
So that's when we realized that we were liars in 2011, that mm-hmm. we didn't have the infrastructure um, to do what we were sitting there telling clients that we would. And um, I think that a lot of folks will find that that uh, they have a, a team, but really that team is just a working group of people. You know, they share the copier, they share the, uh, the break room in the lobby, but for the most part, it's bifurcated and they're all kind of working on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point now, I guess, gosh, it was six or seven years before this incident, we, we decided, Hey, we really have to build a, build a true team. And so luckily we had done that, um, over several years, we had added staff, we had, um, brought on, you know, additional, uh, team members with, with specialty focus. And, and I think, if you were to ask any of our clients, they'd say, well, I have a relationship with a lot of those people at that office. And so our, our clients meet with, they might meet with me. They might meet with my father. They have, you know, we have five other CFPs, um, staff. So we, we've never treated clients as my client, his client, her client. It's always been our client. It's always been, we, you know, we got to test that in 2017. Um, and it definitely, yeah, did business development take a hit for a little bit. Sure. Because, uh, I was out, my dad was, you know, spending some time with me during that time. So, uh, but as far as clients are uh, concerned, our business is concerned, we were able to continue and service our clients and continue managing portfolios and financial planning process, just like we always did. And so that was when we said, wow, we really have built something with some enterprise value here because um, this is actually operating without us right now. And it's kind of a weird concept, but you almost kind of like, oh man, (laughs) They don't even need me there, <laughs> uh, which I think that's the true mark of success, right? So luckily, uh, me being out now, it did make for some interesting, you know, like investment committee meetings and stuff like that, but, and, and, and how we did that logistically. But uh, as far as me being gone for that period of time and kind of slowly transitioning back, um, we have such a great team. I don't know that, I don't know that anybody really felt my absence, <laughs> Which is, again, you know, it's strange to say, but uh, I think that that's a good thing. And, and that's what all, I think that's what every advisor should want to aspire to do. Because at the end of the day, that's that's how you can say that you successfully have built out a team. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's especially key right now with what we're going through with the coronavirus. You know, business continuity plans are very important right now. And people should be getting on those. Um I just wanted to talk a little bit, just one last question, you know, going through the ordeal yourself and having an infectious disease, what's your mindset around the coronavirus? Because I mean, there's a lot of fear and panic going around. What are you doing to manage through this stressful time? You know, I mean, or just any advice that you have for the wider audience going through this fear and panic, um, around it. Yeah. So I'd say that, uh, just have you a set of twins, take your mind off of everything. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's been, uh, you know, what, what better time to bring kids into the world that we joked that their names were going to be Corona and virus, but, um, mom, <laughs> mom vetoed that, but no, I mean, I don't want to make light or, or try, you know, what I went through is very different than I think what uh, the coronavirus is. And I, I think it has some similarities as far as, you know, the respiratory issues and, the um, just being an infectious disease in and of itself. Um, but I, for me, um, you know, whenever I look at the statistics, I'm, I'm no statistician, but I think that especially those of us that manage portfolios understand stats, right? So Mm. I think the one thing that I would tell advisors is to keep in mind, whenever you look at an investment portfolio and you, and you run the models and you run the numbers and you talk about 
outcomes. We, you're just talking about probabilities, and we know that. And it's really not. It's really to say these are. This is a a set of possible outcomes. And usually, if we let's say two standard deviations, ninety five percent of the time, this is what could happen. And then we make decisions accordingly. That's that's what we use to guide our decisions, and uh, you know to make. Um, informed risk management moves. So when we look at statistics surrounding this pandemic, we don't need to view it any differently. Uh, these are not, these projections are really just possible outcomes. I think that we're uniquely qualified, hopefully to drive that point home, that this is not necessarily what's going to happen. It's just a possibility of what could happen. So we've, we need to plan accordingly, which means stay at home, um, distance like we're being told to, um, and make make all the right decisions so we don't see that worst case possibility, which is what we're trying to do when we manage portfolios from a risk standpoint. So I think there's a lot of parallels when it comes to statistics there in that um, hopefully, uh, you know, advisors can relay that to clients that, um, you know, those numbers that we're seeing aren't, aren't uh, definitive numbers. That's just a range of possibilities. And that's how we're making decisions right now. And that's how the healthcare professionals are making decisions. And then another point that I would make that's a little less brainy than that uh, is that uh, whenever I was sick, all the things that we tend to think about, how would I feel if that happened to me? I think I would be worried. This is a very, you know, the roots of this business are it's alpha male, it's macho. You might feel you look weak if you're sick, right? So we don't want to look too vulnerable. We have to be the the strong, calm in the storm. And and so I think that there's probably... um, a little reluctance for folks to talk about, hey, or, or just admit, hey, I am sick. Um, so I definitely would just remind people to think about the fact that if you have good relationships with your clients, um, you know, they're going to be worried about you first as a person. Hmm. That was a great uh, lesson for me throughout my sickness was at first I was worried about what are they, you know, what are they going to think? Or are they going to be are they going to be nervous because they don't know who's watching after their portfolio or, you know, whatever, right. whatever fear we think a client might have at the end of the day, they're really just worried about me because they cared about me as a person because I care about them. You know, that's something to keep in mind just as we work with clients and we have good, sincere, strong relationships. We have, I think less to worry about from a nuts and bolts. Did we get it perfect? And just more of, did we communicate right? And did we show that we cared and did we do what we thought was best at the time? And uh, that's what's key here. Yeah, well, that's that's great. Um, we're, we're just about out of time now. I mean, I could talk about this all day, but uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Brandon Garrett. Brandon, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us your story. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you have a struggle of your own and wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at Transparency with Diana B at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there is healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.